Bible, take the Bible of the person that you just high five, take their Bible and open their Bible to 2 Peter chapter one. If they didn't bring a Bible, but you did, you can give them your Bible and you can go out and buy a new one. That's the way we roll. But you need a Bible if you're going to come to Gospel City Church because the preacher's not creative enough to come up with anything original. So we just open the book and read the ancient words and try to explain them and illustrate them and apply them to our lives. We began a brand new series, which is our brand new ministry year theme a few weeks ago. That theme is take a step. And we've decided that a disciple-making church ought to have a discipleship pathway. We say it like this, disciple-making churches create discipleship pathways so that disciples can take a step. And some of you need to take your first steps, first step of faith, repentance, trusting Christ. Some of you have been uh, taking steps for many years, never get too old to take another step, never too young to take a step. So that's where we're going. We have this discipleship pathway that we've outlined for you now in our church. A quality disciple glorifies, gathers, grows, and goes. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at what it means to glorify God. If we're going to glorify God, we better bear some fruit because Jesus said, by this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and you can only bear much fruit if you abide in Christ. You're a stick and you must abide in the vine on the other end of the vine. If you're doing your job right being the stick, there's going to be some good fruit that's going to produce some good glory going to God. So glorify. Secondly, gather. So we talked about the importance of, of church membership and how every gift is needed. Every member connected to one another assembled so that we can lock arms together for purposes that we couldn't accomplish on our own. And so we gather. And then today that brings us to this word grow. Growing as a Christian should be the experience of every born-again Christian. There's only two realities. You are either growing in godliness or you are stuck in sin. And we're going to see that here from 2 Peter chapter 2. Before we read that, let me just answer the question. What are we growing around here? This is a, a gospel greenhouse and what are we growing? Well, we're growing some devoted worshipers. We're growing some selfless servants. We're growing some durable families. We're growing everyday missionaries. We are growing generous givers. We're growing joyful sufferers. And we're growing some compassionate caregivers, all of which is evidence that we are growing in response to the gospel. Disciples have a tendency to just kind of get stagnant and stale. So we need to take another step and grow together. Notice here in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Now, let me, let me say this before I read this. This is some of the most majestic scripture we have in the Bible. And um, I told you a couple of weeks ago uh, what my life verse is. Do you have a life verse? It's my life verse is Acts 20, 24. This is my wife's life verse right here. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence 
See that word excellence there? My Bible, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And the translators, they must have had a little debate because that word excellence there, they put a little footnote there. If you drop down the bottom of the page, it says another way to translate that Greek word is the word virtue. And so two words, it's hard to translate into English. What's the right English word? Excellence, good word. Virtue is a good word there. You're going to see that in a minute. Look at verse 4. By which he is granted to us. Second time we've seen the word granted. Word granted is grace. It's gift. It is not earned. It is given. So there's something that's been given or granted to us. Here it is. Granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. There's a lot packed in there. I got a really simple outline today. It's so simple I didn't even put it on the screen. We're going to see the, uh, the, what's the, the power for growth. And then we're going to see the pathway for growth and we're going to see the purpose of the growth. Okay, simple outline. You have to write that down. Some of you are writing it down. How many have a journal? Show me a journal. Did you bring a journal to church? Raise your, I want to see the journals. Show the journals. Good. All right. Just, all right. Good. Right. You need a journal in church. Did I mention you need a Bible when you come to church? Yeah. So you need a Bible and you need a journal. Guy came up to me after the eight o'clock service. He's like, why don't you print the outline there in the, it was like, well, because God didn't say the same thing to everybody. I just want you to write down what God says to you. It doesn't matter what I says. So, uh, Write down what God says to you in that journal because we want to grow. And I think people that bring journals to church want to grow. So that's encouraging for me here. Now notice the power that is available to us for growth. Growing in godliness is empowered and sustained by God's grace. It's granted to us. Do you understand what this verse is saying? This verse strips away every excuse you've ever had for not growing as a Christian. It tells us that his divine power has granted to us everything, all things that pertain to your life and your godliness. You know what that means? There is nobody here too young to grow. There's nobody here too old to grow. There's nobody here too poor to grow. There's nobody here too rich to grow. There's nobody here too smart that you can't grow. There's nobody here too dumb that you can't grow. There are no excuses for not growing in godliness. Now, it tells us what's kind of the the, the opponent here to godliness, it's the last two words of verse four there. It talks about how there's this corruption in the world because of sinful desire. And it tells us that we have escaped that corruption in the world um, that comes through that sinful desire. There, there, is a, there is a corruption. Have you noticed there's a corruption going on in the world? Have you ran into a little corruption in the world today or, or this week? Did you, or maybe you watch the news, you see a little corruption in there. And it's easy for us to point the finger at all the corruption out there. But did you know that there is some corruption going on right inside of here? It's that residual remaining magnetic attraction to sinful desires that's still there that we still have to do battle with. So, so the good news is this, we have become partakers of this divine nature that is ours through the knowledge of Jesus. And yet 
there is something that wants to prevent us from growing and it's this, it's this residual sinful desire. Um, I've been reading old books by old dead theologians. Do you understand that the best theologians are all dead? Do you understand that? Okay. And so there's this old guy, his name is J.C. Ryle, and he wrote a book called Holiness that really should be required reading for everybody. I just gave you that reading assignment, Holiness by J.C. Ryle. You can download it on Kindle for 99 cents. Okay. So it's all there out there for you. Dead theologians are the best theologians. And so he defined sin for us this way. I want to show it to you. He said, a sin consist of doing, saying, thinking, or imagining anything that is not in perfect conformity with the mind and law of God. We think of sins, plural, things we do. He's talking about that which is that abiding, remaining, residual, sinful desire, that fleshly nature in us that needs to be crucified every single day so that I can grow in godliness. And he's helping us to understand how deeply rooted this is in us. Notice what he says. He says, the slightest outward or inward departure from absolute mathematical parallelism with God's revealed will and character constitutes a sin and at once makes us guilty in God's sight. Dead theologians love to use multisyllabic words to define monosyllabic words. <laughs> Did you catch that? A departure from absolute mathematical parallelism with God's revealed will and character. You see, we've just read that God's will and character is excellent. There's a divinity to it. There's a perfection to it. And any departure from the parallel, think about two train tracks. What happens if one of the tracks is not parallel? What happens to the train? Train wreck. That's you when you sin. You are a train wreck. And some of your lives are train wrecks. I'm like, I wonder what happened. Well, what's going on? You departed from the mathematical parallelism of God's revealed will. You say, well, if I only knew God's will, I wouldn't depart from it. Read your Bible. This is the will and the ways of God. God has preserved and disclosed his mind to us about all things that pertain to life and godliness. And he has given us his divine power to overcome the sinful desire, no matter how tempting it may be for you to depart. You are either growing in grace or you are stuck in sin. My job is to encourage you to bring your life into absolute mathematical parallelism with the revealed will and character of God. In other words, if, if those monosyllabics, if, if that was too much for you, what I'm trying to say is stop sinning. That's what, because you don't have an excuse not to. His divine nature has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. Grow. And it's a gift. Second thing we need to learn, 
is there's a pathway. There's a pathway for this growth. And we find that here in verse 5. It says, for this very reason. Now, he's connecting what he's about to say to what he just said. So the reason for growth is that you have no excuses not to grow. You have power and promises from God. For those reasons, he says, make every effort. Let me just stop right there. The first part is God's responsibility. He gives you the power. The second part is your responsibility. You have to exert some effort. Every effort. You understand? No effort, no growth. You cannot just sit back and, you know, I'm reading my Bible, I got my cup of coffee open, and I'm just sitting here meditating on scripture and loving Jesus with all my heart. That's not growth. That's abiding. But until you exert some effort, you're not growing. So he says, make every effort to supplement your faith. Some of your translations may say add to your faith. Supplement's a good word. It starts with faith and then notice these seven supplements. He says, supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. Let's stop right there. Now, did you see the stairway that he built for us? The foundation is faith. That's the floor. And then there is this seven step stairway that is the pathway of gospel growth. And notice he could have just given us the list. He didn't do that. He said one builds on the other. So there's some sense of sequence in this. And it is a good thing. You want to add virtue before you add knowledge. What happens if you add knowledge before you add virtue? You become an arrogant Bible fathead. You have to have the virtue of humility before you add the virtue of knowledge and then to knowledge, self-control, self-control to steadfastness and the pathway continues. And so let's talk about these, these seven supplements to our faith. You want to grow? There you go. There's your assignment. It's convenient that there's seven of them. So maybe Monday you could work on virtue. Maybe Tuesday you could work on knowledge. There's a lot of different ways that we could wrap our heads around this. Before we talk about the supplements, let's talk about the foundation. Faith, right? He says, add to your faith. What is faith? Faith is the exclusive reliance on the substitutionary work, you might say effort, of Christ for our salvation. All right? So there's certain parts of this that require my effort. Faith does not require my effort. Faith is a gift. Faith is a gift to be believed. It is to be received. Faith in the effort, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The default setting of the human heart is to think I've got to work my way to God. I gotta be on my best behavior. I gotta do some religious ceremony. And what you're saying is I've got to rely on my good behavior to get myself into heaven. Wrong answer. What we do is we transfer our reliance and transfer our faith from our good behavior to Christ's good behavior, from our effort to his effort on the cross as the only thing that can save me. Question, have you done that? This is the first gigantic step that you take out of the kingdom of darkness 
into the kingdom of light. This is what transfers you into God's kingdom is taking the gigantic step of renouncing faith in self and pronouncing faith in Christ. Have you done that? It happens at a point. It happens as a step in response to the gospel, in response to God's grace that has granted this to us. We believe it. Have you done that? If you haven't done that, none of the other things apply to you. You have to take the step of faith. If you haven't done that, you can do that right now in your own heart. Say, Lord, I'm trying, I'm, I'm so tired of trying to work to earn your favor. I am so grateful for the work of Christ on the cross. And you transfer your faith from yourself into faith, into Jesus and it produces new birth. It produces new life. It's the one gigantic step out of the kingdom of the world into the kingdom of God. Have you done that? If you have, it's time to take another step and supplement your faith with virtue. I've given each one of these a definition. It's my definition. I don't even know if it's the right definition. Best I could come up with to clarify words, okay? So here's the definition. My definition is inner character that increasingly reflects God's own moral excellence. And remember I told you that, that the way they translated the word excellence back up in verse 3? The same Greek word is used in verse 5 when he says, supplement your faith with virtue. Same word, it could be excellence. What are we talking about? We're talking about becoming a reflection of the moral excellence of God. We're talking about eliminating the gap between what I say I believe, that's faith, and how I actually behave, that's virtue. It's, it's bringing integrity to my life. It's becoming who God says I am. God says I'm righteous. And so I become in my behavior what God says I am in my belief. That's virtue. And so we add to that. It, it applies to, to every area of attitude and action. And so add to your faith. Don't just say you believe something. Start behaving that way. Make every effort to eliminate the gap between what you say you believe and what and how you actually behave. Here's the second word. He says, add to your virtue, knowledge. And we're not just talking about academic knowledge. We're not talking about passing Bible trivia test here. What he's talking about is an intimate knowledge of the person, the will, and the ways of God as revealed in his word. I know that two plus two is four. Is two plus two still four, by the way? It's been a long time since I had a math class. Two, I mean, I, we live in a parallel, very relativistic society. Have they changed that? Was anybody offended that I made an absolute declaration of something that's true? Two plus two is four. I know that. How many of you knew that? Good. If you didn't know that, I'm glad you brought your journal. Just write that down. Two plus two is four. Learn something in church today. I also know Andrea Griffith. That's a different type of knowledge, isn't it? Some of you know the books of the Bible. 
some of you know Jesus died on a cross three days later, resurrected. You know some Bible. You know some facts about God. What we're talking about is not adding facts about God to your already overly stuffed brain. We're talking about an intimate, personal relationship where he speaks and you, you move. Where you speak and he moves. You know him with intimate, personal knowledge. You know what pleases him. You know what displeases him. And how would we know that? The only way we would know anything about God is if he initiated the relationship and self-disclosed what's in his mind to us. If he learned our language and communicated, spoke into the world. And he's done that in the person of Jesus Christ and with the word of God that's preserved for us, the work of Jesus Christ. And so this intimate knowledge of God comes as we open our Bibles and wrap our minds around the revealed nature and will of God. There's this new technology. This will help you. Some of you are looking for like, you know, how do I get to know God? There's this new technology. Uh, it's called reading. Um, um, there's this new medium that's been created. It's called books. And uh, you can get them and open them and actually stop everything else you're doing and actually read words on pages that form sentences, that form thoughts, that forms meditation, that forms thinking, that forms prayers, and forms action. You need to read some books. You need to read your Bible. Start there. But I, I, I love to recommend uh, a book. It's my favorite book of all time. Number one book of all time is the ESV Study Bible. Okay, if you do not have an ESV study Bible, I don't even know how you call yourself a Christian. I mean, it's just like, I'm joking a little bit about that, but it's like, I read that thing every day. I don't preach a sermon without looking at like what's in there. And it's, it, I, I know there's lots of different study Bibles. That one is written by guys that actually believe the Bible. They're on our team. They, they affirm our doctrine. They, they affirm our faith so that we know doctrinal truth. Can you take a step in your knowledge? Would you be able to define the word or the doctrines of justification, sanctification, glorification, propitiation, and other multisyllabic words that help us to understand the revealed nature and will of God? You say, ah, oh, I don't need that. I just come to church. And listen, the knowledge that you get from here to there is not sufficient. I'm, I'm just telling you, this is not. Last Sunday afternoon, I went home, I laid down, just took a 12 minute nap. And then um, there was a knock on my door. And so I dragged myself over to the door there. They knocked three times because I ignored the first two. And so I, I walked over there and opened the door and there were these two good looking dudes standing there in ties. And, um, I, and they said, hey, can we talk to you about your spiritual beliefs? Like, okay. And they, they, they said, do you go to church? And I said, yeah. They said, well, what, what does your church believe? Like, well, I, 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 it's like, we, we, it's called Gospel City Church. We believe the gospel. We believe that 
God, there's only one God, and he's disclosed himself through one book um, called the Bible, and that's the sufficient revelation of everything we need for salvation and life and godliness, and it's only by trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross as a substitute for our sin that we all can be saved. If you'd like to know more, I could go into more detail. Um, and... Uh, and I said, what? I asked them their names, Zach and Tyler, They're really nice guys. And, and they, they told me they were from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, and, uh, and you know what, the first thing I really said to them is like, um, I'll bet some of the people that go to my church haven't been real friendly to you. And on behalf of my church, could I just apologize? You guys have probably been told you're the devil and I'm sorry about that. And they said, you have no idea what we've been called. <laughs> I'm like, I probably have some idea. I'm sorry for that. You know, it's like, hey, you know, I, and I said, I respect you guys. You're probably really sincere about what you believe. Um, but you'd have to acknowledge that we believe different things about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we believe different things about what we think we can become. And one of the teachings there is that, you know, we can all become gods because they take this verse, actually verse three, and talk about that divine nature, how we're becoming the divine nature. We, we say we become partakers in the divine nature. They say they become the divine nature. They become God. So anyway, I was sitting there thinking, about, we had a very nice conversation. I would love to tell you that they dropped to their knees, repented of sin, placed faith in Christ. They didn't do that. And neither did I convert to comfort your heart. I didn't convert. Um, but, but here's what I was thinking. I'm like, oh, after that was over with, I'm like, oh, Lord, what? are the people in my church going to say to these two dudes? Would they have enough knowledge of the doctrines of Christ to first of all, to discern there's different, and then secondly, to actually communicate accurately the person, the will, and the ways of God as revealed in his word. Zach and Tyler are coming to your house and they would like to know if you have enough knowledge about what you've been taught from the Bible. And I'm getting, getting it like just like this is not enough. You'll just get mad at them because you're actually mad at yourself because you don't have enough knowledge to defend what you believe. Don't get mad at Zach and Tyler. Get mad at yourself enough to dive into the book and find out what God has revealed about himself. So. At, you might want to add to your faith because Zach and Tyler are coming to your house soon. And then um, self-control. Self-control. Here's a definition. Personal spiritual disciplines that govern sinful appetites. Personal spiritual disciplines. You know what th this means? Uh, I have this magnetic attraction to sin and I'm honest enough to admit it. That means that I must not allow my eyes to look at certain things certain screens that I cannot look at. There, there, are, there are certain relationships I cannot have. There are certain ways of thinking. I can't let my mind go there or I will get angry, worried, depressed, and anxious. Part of self-control is not allowing my mind to spin out of control. And the way that 
I keep it in control is to realize the spirit of God is in control that governs me. And so there's boundaries and places that I go. I can't just go and do whatever I want to do. Um, and then steadfastness. We're to add steadfastness to self-control. We're going to define it this way. That's patient endurance, which withstands opposition without turning my back on God. You, I'm, if you've if you've put your faith in Christ, I'm so happy about that. You need to put your faith in Christ. You've taken that step. If you've added virtue, you took that step, fantastic. Um, if you added self-control and knowledge, great. Keep taking that step. But if you've done that like for the last three days, what are you going to do on day four? It requires steadfastness to do it this week and next week, this year and next year, this decade and that decade. That's what this is talking about. Because you know what the world is going to do? The world is going to continue to throw temptation at you. The world is going to continue to try to erode your conviction. The world is going to try to get you to assimilate into its way of thinking. And the devil's going to throw temptation after temptation. It's never going away. Decade one, decade two, decade three. At what point will you stop taking a step? Steadfastness is patient endurance. No matter what trial, no matter what difficulty, no matter what diagnosis, I am standing firm on the word of God. That is steadfastness. And then here's really the best word I think in the list. It's this word godliness. It really has to do with the devotion to live a life that pleases God in every way. There's this heart stirring passion and love to please God. God. And I love what J.C. Ryle said about this absolute mathematical parallelism. It means to be like God. Not God, but like God. To bring my life into conformity to that which pleases God. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. Real simple formula here. You want to be a godly person? Just do this. Do nothing that you would not like God to see. Say nothing that you would not like God to hear. Write, I would add post, nothing that God would not like to read. Go no place where God would not like to find you. Read no book of which you would not like God to say, show it to me. Never spend your time in such a way that you would not like to have God say, what are you doing? Can I come with you? Would that bring some godliness to your life if you were just to live by those simple principles? It would change us, wouldn't it? Bringing my life into absolute mathematical parallelism with the revealed will of God. Steering me away from sin and into godliness. And add to your godliness this brotherly affection commit to, uh, it's a commitment to family that refuses to harbor hurt. This really has to do with these relationships that we have. This, This is talking about the people that are in closest proximity to us, the people you cannot get away from. Your husband, your wife, your children, your parents. This brotherly affection. And you know what it is? It's not this fake syrupy sentimentalism. It's it's actually acknowledging these people I live with are annoying. 
but I am not going to allow that to disrupt our unity and our love for one another. I am going to learn to forgive and I'm going to learn to seek forgiveness because I'm not letting anything drive a wedge in the relationship. Brotherly affection learns to resolve conflict. Brotherly affection learns to forgive. Brotherly affection learns to seek forgiveness because we're going to go the distance together. Brotherly affection, there's one more quality. What do you add to brotherly affection? What is it? Love. So isn't that the same thing? No, it's different. Love is spiritual generosity that lays down its life for the good of others. You see the brotherly affection part, that's loving the people that are actually like you, the family. Love is a supernatural generosity toward people who are not like you. They're of a different generation. They're of a different denomination. They're of a different belief system, worldview, a different gender. They identify as a different gender. They're of a different political party. But we love that extends to them the grace of the gospel and the divine power that, that we get to be partakers of. We want everybody to know. So we love the lost. And so we add, we supplement to these things. So that's the pathway to growth. And so which one of those seven things you're going to grow in. You're going to show up next week. You grew up in some of those. There's one more thing, and it is the purpose of growth. And we find that in verse eight. He says, if these qualities are yours and increasing, so it's not just stagnant. It's every week you grow a little more. If they're yours and increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 9, for whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted, so nearsighted that he's blind, so he can't see in front of him, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins, he can't see behind him. He's been cleansed. Jesus died on the cross. Gospel truth. That brought so much conviction in his life. He devoted his life to it, but he forgot about the conviction and the passion and forgot about how significant that was. So he's, he's not growing, so he's, he doesn't know who he is. He's lost his identity in Christ. And so he's a lost his assurance for faith. In verse 10, it says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these things, you will never fall. The purpose of growth is the assurance of salvation. You cannot have assurance if you do not have growth. You cannot have growth if you don't have effort, and you cannot have effort if you haven't experienced gospel grace. Step by step by step by step. I want you to stand up with me. I want you to look at these seven qualities. Which one of those seven qualities has the Spirit of God pricked your heart about? Pick one. Got it? In the next seven days, grow in that area. Reading a book doesn't necessarily mean you grew in knowledge. There's a difference between growth and swelling, remember? Swelling means you're sick. Growth means you're healthy. 
And so understand, it's not just getting bigger, it's, it's making progress step by step by step. No excuses. His divine power has granted all things pertaining to your life and godliness. Jesus, thank you that that power is available to us through your spirit. And I pray, God, you would rattle us out of our complacency. Would you, would you get us unstuck from those sinful desires? Would you conform us to your image? And God, in some way, make us absolutely, mathematically parallel with your revealed will. We're going to fail you so many ways. God, help us take a step in gospel growth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Next week, Micah's preaching. You are loved.